welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. First of all, a little warning about my voice today. I'm in Colorado, and the smoke from the California fires is making me very hoarse. And so I'm drinking throat coat tea. I'm trying to get my voice in a place where I can actually record this, but it's a little shaky. So I apologize on the front end. We got some amazing, beautiful, heartfelt emails from the last two episodes. Thank you so much. Every email you send me, it's like a little just gift. Because in general, I hate email because email is often, ask, <coughs> excuse me, is often asking me to do things that just seem like a lot of work. But emails that come for Back from the Abyss, ah, oh, such a gift. And a few of you who wrote about the last two episodes asked me to send them on to the storytellers. And I just want to let you all know that completing that circle and having the storyteller read your email, oh, that's such a gift. Because then I get feedback from the storytellers about how meaningful that was to them. So again, all of you who write into us, your emails are deeply appreciated, and I will always respond to them. So today I bring you an episode that I've been wanting to do ever since I started this podcast. At the end of the third year of medical school, many med students have kind of an existential crisis. After a year in the core rotations, they come to the ironic and awkward realization that medicine is about taking care of sick people and often very sick people. This then catalyzes a mini rush to the specialties that don't directly deal with very ill patients. For those of us who stayed in the specialties that are in the trenches with very ill patients, part of our calculus in the choice of medical specialty is what kind of pain and suffering we think we think we can best handle. And for me, orthopedic trauma and the operating room and burns and geriatrics off the table completely. I was looking for something where I could have longer-term relationships with patients dealing with chronic illness. And the unique suffering of psychiatric illness, I came to realize that this was the type of pain I knew I would be able to handle. Well, as you listeners know who've listened to all the seasons, you know that I mostly handle it well, sometimes not. Every specialty has its dreaded diagnoses. The words that you never want to have to pronounce to a patient and their family. And in psychiatry, this word, this diagnosis, is schizophrenia. Today's story is told by Meg and Phil, whom I've been working with pretty much my whole career. I met their son Matthew when he had had his first psychotic break during middle school, the same middle school my three girls attended. And soon thereafter, I spoke the word that psychiatrists most dread, our Voldemort word, schizophrenia. Matthew was and remains the youngest patient I've ever given this diagnosis. It's said that the worst thing that can happen to someone is to lose a child. But what if you lose your child, not to death, but to a disabling and pervasive mental illness that goes off like a grenade in the brain, shattering essential cognitive, perceptive, emotional, and personality circuits? It's like a body snatching. Your child's still there, but they aren't. The former child is gone. And in his or her place stands someone else. Today, Meg and Phil share their journey. The death of what they thought their life and their gifted son would become. And the agonizing steps towards acceptance and recovery. 
even as a young kid, um, he was very slow to warm to new situations. And, and, you know, we knew he was shy, but he was also very athletic. He was just always this, you know, shy, meek person, but also a very intelligent person and somebody who wanted to do things in the world. And, and he wanted to be, um, if you asked him what he wanted to be, he wanted to be a marine biologist or a veterinarian. He wanted to do things with animals. And um, they say that, that people being slow to warm to new situations indicates that they might be, um, you know, they might have a problem like this later. But of course, lots of people are shy and are fine. <laughs> um, anyway, in uh, 2006... We um, we took two huge family vacations. We went to Europe for the first time, and we went to Hawaii in the same year. And he had been to Hawaii before, and he loved it there, and he loved to surf and things, and he just didn't enjoy anything. And we just thought something's gone off here, and so we took him... Um, to a counselor and people talked to him and they thought he had depression. And um, this was the summer between eighth grade and ninth grade. He played baseball, soccer, basketball, and tennis. And I mean, sometimes he would do two sports at a time. He just loved, he just loved sports. And, um, in eighth grade, he was the number one singles for his school because they had a little tennis team, you know. And then that summer between eighth and ninth grade was when things started going wrong. They said, well, we think he's depressed, and, and they put him on Prozac. And things seemed to be better for a little while, but then he started getting angry, belligerent with us. And... um and he started saying that he wanted to have a gun and uh, we weren't going to have any gun. We don't have any guns and we weren't going to get any guns. And he started saying that he was angry with us. And he started things like over, you know, certain music that we didn't think he should listen to or extremely violent video games uh, you know, I remember particularly he wanted this one and I looked into it and it was, um, it was a war game where, um, I remember especially you could get points for like kicking the bodies of enemies that you had killed in this game. And I thought that's just, that's like an atrocity, like a war crime that they're giving you points for, you know, and I, I didn't want him to play a game like that. And he got more and more um, angry about things that we wouldn't let him do or things that we made him do. And and at, in the fall, he said to me for the first time that he was so angry he thought he could kill us. And um, But he still was saying he wanted a gun. And at one point he said that he was so angry that he could kill us uh, but if we gave him a gun, he wouldn't be angry anymore. 
And then you looked in his backpack. Why don't you say something? Well, this was a, our son was very bright and very organized. And when he had an assignment, he would always work on it right away. We didn't have to remind him. And I decided to look in his backpack when all this was going on. Because there seemed to be a lot more anger and less working on homework. And I found wads of paper, just balls, like snowballs of wadded paper. And I started pulling it out, and I realized there was this history project due, like, the next day. And that wasn't like him at all. And I said, what about this? And he's like, oh, I just forgot about that. So I'm trying to help him come up with this person he's supposed to be for this history project and totally surreal because things had really, things were going downhill fast and this wasn't our son anymore. Yeah. family doctor um, referred us out for uh, to the Mountain Crest outpatient and um, so we wound up seeing you and this was February of 2007 and um, so then we all were in talking to you for a while and then you had uh, Meg and I leave and you just talked to Matthew for a while and then you called us back in and you said, um, I think he needs to stay here tonight because I don't want to read about your family tomorrow on the paper. And that was the first time, even though he had said it, you know, even though he had said that he felt angry, that he's so angry that he wanted to kill us, I, I didn't understand, you know, I didn't understand the whole thing about you know, homicidal ideation and things. And of course he told you that he had a plan and of course, um, you know, so then he was in the hospital for like a week. Yeah. I think his plan was, if I remember right, that he was going to come in in the middle of the night and stab you. Yeah. I think that's right. Cause he didn't have a gun. So he was going to, yeah. So, um, yeah. And I believe, uh, mom was going to be first. As I recall, I think that was actually a detail that was related. So he was in the hospital for, I think, a week. And um, we sat at home and and just cried and waited for the visiting hour and tried to understand, you know, we couldn't understand, of course, what was happening. We didn't really know anything about uh, schizophrenia or, and, and we didn't even have the diagnosis then, I think, you know, they first, they were, you know, started out saying, well, he, he's definitely got psychosis and they made us t- take the strings out of his sweatpants and his shoes and when he, he got couldn't in the have hospital. shoelaces. And that was really rough. 
Yeah. So why was my son needing to have his shoelaces taken away and his drawstring on his sweatpants? Yeah. So he was. Yeah. So that was when when he got checked in there. I, I was. He let me go back there with him. I mean, he's. It's. You know. Young onset, severity of symptoms, all these things are against him. And yet one thing that's been constant is that he was still in many ways willing to talk to us, willing to confide in us, willing to let us be there. I mean, he let me be there while he was being uh, checked in to the hospital all along he's he's had the, some some insight that something was wrong with him and not just something's things were wrong with the world yeah schizophrenia is a neurodevelopmental disorder and also has an autoimmune component it's partially genetic partially related to in utero exposures and partially related to early childhood environment and stressors There's about a 40 to 50% twin concordance, which means that if one identical twin goes on to develop schizophrenia, it's about a 40 to 50% chance that the other twin will develop schizophrenia. The neurodevelopmental aspect of schizophrenia appears to be directly tied to its autoimmune component. In the normally maturing adolescent brain, the immune system marks certain synaptic connections for elimination leading to the end of the profound plasticity of the infant and child brain. But in schizophrenia, this synaptic elimination or pruning process goes totally haywire, with the immune system flooding the brain with protein markers, which then leads to massive over-pruning and the devastation of many of the major pathways of the brain. This may be why schizophrenia typically appears in late adolescence, correlating with the beginnings of the adult brain. What do you remember about how the diagnosis of schizophrenia was made and what that was like to get that diagnosis and begin to understand that? Do you remember? Because I'm not really sure. It seems like it wasn't very long, which is interesting because so many people wait years and years for a diagnosis. And I don't remember when the how we got the diagnosis and when, but it seems like it wasn't long. It wasn't long and it was very devastating. To think that our son, who seemed so capable of having a wonderful future, could have that serious diagnosis. And we bought a giant book about schizophrenia, and we started reading about it. And a lot of the symptoms were exactly like what we were seeing with our son. And that was scary. The book was uh, Surviving Schizophrenia, which I think is really good. Um because partially because it's not like a a thing that you have to read cover to cover you can you can kind of flip around in that book and read a couple of pages and and gain something out of it and you don't have to sort of commit to mm-hmm. <laughs> reading the whole thing mm-hmm. what do you remember about those early weeks and months you know after he got out of the hospital you have this new diagnosis. He's on an antipsychotic. He's only, what, 15? One thing is that he did not go back to school for the rest of that year. So 
uh, we were fortunate that the school district was really good. And, and, and we've had people, you know, we hear very mixed reports. Some people have a terrible experience with the school district. And we were just very fortunate that uh, all the school administrators and counselors that we dealt with really wanted to help. And uh, they, uh, they sent tutors to the house. And, um, but, but he was having an awful time, right? He didn't go back to school the rest of the year because he was, he was having hallucinations even then. He was having mostly auditory hallucinations. But I remember in particular, and we were trying to keep, you know, things life kind of normal, right? So we went out, and, and he has an older brother, too. We went out as a family f- to dinner one night. And um, and he Matthew went to the bathroom, and he came back, and he was just shaking. He said that when he was in the bathroom, he saw a bloody knife on the floor of the bathroom. Now, mostly he was having auditory hallucinations and mostly it was a voice commanding him to kill himself or kill us but that time he had um you know a visual hallucination and it really really shook him up those weeks and months were extremely tough because i was working and fortunately meg was home uh and so she could watch over him and it was really really hard because he was all over the place and he was he told me one morning that he he didn't know if it was a dream or real but that he was in this battle and there were all these people and it was this huge battle and he was afraid that he had killed somebody and I said no you did not kill anybody you're right here with me and you're just waking up for the day. But he had thought that he had hurt someone. Mm-hmm. So he was really upset. So I was really grateful that I could be at home with him. I was home with him all day. And he wasn't having to be sent off somewhere else. Or So even though life was really hard, he had me during the day and he had all of us at night so that was one blessing months after in in early April he wound up back in the hospital with suicidal ideation the first time he was hospitalized was homicidal ideation when he had shared the plan and they so in April suicidal ideation and um, had his 15th birthday in the hospital and you know with it, it was I think at that time they you know, tried switching him to another medication and we brought him home again. And, and then after that, we 
kept doing medication changes and and um but that was the the only was in the hospital twice there were times when we did med changes and you allowed him to do med changes and we would bring him in several times during the week because I didn't want him in the hospital again and I was I had the luxury of being a stay-at-home mom because it was torture to have him in the hospital so you allowed us to to the med changes and I would bring him in several times during the week and we did it that way and then I remember there were times when you said if you want a respite we can hospitalize him and you can have that time off but I didn't want it mm. so that was su- that was such a scary time yeah. he was on several meds and then we slowly decided okay we really don't need this one so we'll take him off of that and I remember him being unstable this was a person that was very athletic that loved to do sports and he was on several meds that made him very wobbly and I remember trying to help him out of the car because he couldn't get out by himself. And that was hard. Mm-hmm. So then in uh, we got to the end of the school year, and he said he wanted to go back for the last day for the yearbooks and stuff. And so he did. And um, one of the girls in his class saw him, and she said, they wouldn't tell us what happened to you. We we thought you were dead, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know there he wa- there he was, and and he he really seemed happy about uh, having done that, you know. And so I don't know. He you know the whole um, anhedonia um, was there, but but he he and and evolution, right? Lack of motivation, but he had. You know, he had something he wanted to do still, and he did it, and so, and he felt good about it. So, that was hopeful. Mm-hmm. I remember in those early months, excuse me, with all the med changes, trying to find something that would dial down the suicidal ideation, the homicidal stuff, the voices. And I remember hoping that he was going to be positive symptom predominant because he was the youngest person I'd ever diagnosed with schizophrenia. And, you know, meds do much better with the positive symptoms, the delusions and the hallucinations and the voices and the thought disturbance. Uh, But then we made the transition to clozapine, which in some ways was a huge step for him because it did finally dial back all his positive symptoms. But then, again, my memory was that that's when we began to see that, in fact, underneath the scary positive symptoms were really profound negative symptoms of schizophrenia, like the lack of will, the lack of interest in engaging in people, the anhedonia, the inability to really enjoy anything, the sort of affective dulling, the restricted mood, and um, and just this flattening. I mean, I didn't know Matthew before, but I, I'm curious what that was like for you. As his doctor, that was a really painful time to see 
what was emerging. I was, again, so hoping that the old him would start to come back. Well, I, I think we had seen the, the flattening, you know, before that. And I felt the once he went on the clozapine, which wasn't until three years after his first break, because we were resistant to it, largely, <laughs> because, you know, of the, uh, you know, monthly monitoring and all. But Oh, it was scary. First, we had to go every week. Right. For blood draws. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I think in retrospect, we wish now we now we think we should have done it sooner. But whatever, you don't you don't understand what you don't understand, right? So we're all growing over time. And anyway, so it it just felt amazing the the difference once he went on it. He didn't have another suicidal episode, and that's been eleven years we we only really experienced that as a tremendous positive had already seen the you know the executive function thing is is really bad right and we went from doing all these advanced classes working on his goal of going to college anywhere he wanted to go basically he could have went he had mostly a's and a couple of b's and then as the illness progressed we saw more and more cognitive loss and classes became harder and harder and yeah but we were still able to he didn't want to get up in the morning and i would go in and talk to him and say you know it's the law i've got to bring you to school it's the law <laughs> and we'd have these little conversations and then we'd get up and it was hard but he did it he he would get up and uh school was always so important to him that he was still going, and I was the stay-at-home mom, so I was able to bring him to school, and I didn't want him to be worried in between classes, so he came out to the car, and I was the locker room, and he would get his next book and go back in, and then he didn't want to be in the cafeteria with all the noise, so he would eat in the car with me, and we did that, and we were getting along. But he went from being an AP student to being in a special class for developmentally disabled kids. Yeah. I, and, think that, yeah. I think that really highlights, you know, a lot of people I think know that schizophrenia is a illness that involves, you know, maybe hallucinations and delusions and distortions in thought. But I think what most people don't realize is that schizophrenia is a cognitive disorder as well. And there's, often a 15, 20, 25 point IQ drop. There's often a profound decline in the ability to learn, to calculate, to do what yet was referred to as executive functioning, which is to prioritize and order and manage, you know, to be the CEO of your life. 
and for many people, schizophrenia, that's far more disabling than the symptoms that we think of as being classic of schizophrenia. You know, we'll talk about this more later, but we, we are in, do these support groups and we hear over and over from people that their loved one is at the same developmental stage that they were when they had their first break. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true uh, for him as well. Uh, he's never been on a date. He doesn't, he doesn't shave himself, right? There's, there's just all kinds of things that, um, that never happened for him, right? In general, good insight is a positive predictive factor for the treatment of psychiatric illness. With schizophrenia, however, the situation, it's more complicated. Matthew has generally had decent insight into the fact that he has a severe mental illness and needs to take medication. But this insight has also been a source of anger and confusion and grief, for he recognizes what his illness has cost him. Tragically, the presence of insight with schizophrenia significantly increases the risk of suicide. For this reason, we've all been very, very grateful that Matthew has had such a positive response to clozapine and hasn't been suicidal in years. It's not like he is a normal person of his age saying, you know, I'm going to go, I want to go do these things. He just, he, he can't. And yet he can interact with people um, fairly normally for the mm-hmm. most part. In the sense that people who don't see him very often don't really understand what is going on with him. Like, you know, relatives that see him once a year, they know that he has a limited life, but they can ask him questions and he's willing to talk to them these days. But anyway. This one short little film clip we saw in our family-to-family class, a psychiatrist talks about schizophrenia as burning through the brain like a wildfire. And so I think of that with Matthew as there are some parts of his brain that he has still has this precise skill and knowledge. And then there are other parts of his brain, like I'll say, remember this trip we did? He has no memory of it. Mm-hmm. He does not remember that trip at all. That's, uh, it's very hard because he was always so smart. Mm-hmm. So it was not only the huge change in his intellectual abilities and his interests, but it sounds like even just his core personality. Is that fair to say? Like who Matthew was and who he is now is right. as profoundly in, different. In the NAMI class we talk about the different stages of emotional response and we had to grieve that loss of what he was going to be and what he was going to achieve and we had to reset we reset what we thought was our new normal and to try to go on move on we needed to move on with this new normal because what we had our hopes and dreams we had for him we're not going to be the same. And he feels that loss profoundly, too, as many people 
with schizophrenia do that they see others moving on with their lives and, and, you know, doing, uh, you know, getting married or buying a house or having kids or, or having a great career and things. And, and, and he does feel that loss. you've mentioned NAMI. I wonder if you might share how you got hooked up with the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill and sort of your, your journey through that as parents and then taking the, the family to family class and then starting to teach that. Do you remember the, when was the first time we went to a meeting? We had a prescription that <laughs> <laughs> was written and right. handed to us and it had NAMI on it. And so we contacted that person and they told us about the next meeting. And we went to that meeting. That was probably 08? Maybe it was 07. And I remember the first meeting. um, One, it was nice to know that a meeting even existed in this world where other people were dealing with somebody that had a serious, persistent mental health problem. And I remember being glad that we were in there, but I didn't want to say a word. I just wanted to listen. And you shared our story. And after the meeting, a person gave us their card and said, if you have any questions, you can call me. But it was really like a breath of fresh air to know that we had a support group right there in town that we could go to. You know, you can read lots of statistics about how many people, how many families are affected by mental illness. And of course, you see this. They love to make the numbers big. So they say like one in five or something. It's not like one in five families is going through something like we did. But but um, you know you're not alone, right? You You know that there are other people. But knowing that you're not alone because you read that, oh, this many million people exist who have this kind of thing is one thing, and then actually being in a room full of other people who have similar experiences and who who can relate to your story and who share their stories, that's when instead of just knowing you're not alone, you're really not alone. You have a community of other people who have who are members of a club that no one wanted to join and understand something about about what you're going through even though everyone's experience is unique and yet we all we all share some things mm-hmm. what was your experience your memory of first being in that parenting class we were so wrapped up in trying to um help him get through high school um and he graduated on time and oh my gosh, we 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 expended massive effort on on that, and and they, you know, they let him 
do things like not take speech class and not take gym class and stuff. And he had still had the same number of credits, but he they let him out of certain requirements, you know. And uh, we were so wrapped up in um, trying to help him get through high school that we never took the class until after he graduated. So the summer after he graduated from high school, we took the class, uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness. The um, class is called Family to Family. And uh, at the time it was 12 weeks. Now it's only eight weeks. Another experience almost as powerful as, you know, finding your tribe. Um, For one thing, you know, again, you have people all together to take the class and, and it's taught by family members who have the same lived experience. So one of the things that Nami tries to do is whatever audience a support group or a class is intended for, it is taught by someone who's in that same sort of role. So you're not in a class that's being taught by a professional you're in a class that's being taught by somebody with a, some sort of similar experience to you. So, the, And there are support groups and classes for people themselves who are living with mental illness that, again, are taught by someone else who's in recovery. You have some exercises that, that try to let you understand something about how life is experienced by someone who has one of these illnesses. And you have a communication workshop and... A self-care workshop and all of these things, you just have this big toolbox of things that you can try to use to cope. And we talk about setting boundaries and negotiating a new life for yourself and your loved one. And we talk about what is your goal so as as family members, what is your goal for your loved one? And of course, many of the family members who are there are parents, but they're also siblings. And they're also children of folks living with mental illness and, and their spouses. Uh, one of the things, and this is a goal that is especially relevant to parents, is what is your goal for your loved one? Is it is it uh, to, to get them into an independent life or is it... Um, healthy dependence through all the devastation it was like this is one thing that i could do to help somebody else because when you help somebody it makes you feel better (laughs) and i was helping matthew every day but i wanted to do something else because there's some there's some days when you can try to help somebody but they're not feeling like needing your help or wanting your help and when I was taking the class I was thinking this is something that I could do to help other people navigate through this because it's it's nothing that you ever ever would choose to do it's something that you were dealt in life and I felt like I have the tools to be able to help other people. Are there some 
memories you have of teaching the class that were particularly moving or powerful? I'm guessing that you probably worked with some people that touched you or their stories really resonated. Oh my gosh, there was one family, this older couple, they were probably in their 80s that came and took the class and their son was like 50 or something. And he had been diagnosed at a time when the official position of the medical community was that this was the parent's fault, particularly the mother's fault. This was in the 70s. And, you know, your heart just breaks for those people because even now it's extremely, you know, everybody's, especially the parents, are always thinking about, you know, did did I do something that caused this to happen to my child? And, um, and, and we talk about all it, you know, when we talk about what they think causes are, you know, oh, well, there could be an insult in the womb or, and then there's a second strike thing, or, you know, they have all these theories, but nobody knows. And then one of the things we say is, you know what, even if someday somebody figures out that, oh, it's because, you know, you ate three bagels on a Tuesday or whatever, um, nobody knew that. You can't blame yourself for something you didn't know. And then there's one place in the class where we talk about what's hard for different family members and when we get to the part about what's hard for fathers, it says um, it's it's hard for fathers because fathers, anything that's wrong in the family, fathers want to fix it. And this is not fixable. It says, <clears throat> you haven't failed anyone. You haven't let anyone down. say are the biggest ongoing challenges for each of you you know as a parent as a spouse um, caring for Matthew who still lives with you obviously and I mean you have a lot of wisdom you've been through so much yet it's still really hard I think I did uh, try to do counseling with Matthew and Phil and uh that wasn't working. We were getting a lot of combative problems. And you said, there's really nothing that says uh, someone with schizophrenia going to counseling can help unless they're really wanting to do it. And that was when we really had our worst conflicts. So we quit having Matthew do counseling and I did it myself. And I never thought Growing up, I was never told, oh, well, you're going to need to have counseling sometime during your life. Because I felt like when I was growing up, my parents taught me a lot of things. They taught me how to be a good person. But I was never 
dealt this thing of a serious mental illness. And I found counseling to be very helpful. So I did it myself. And that itself empowered me. And I felt like I was better able to cope with all of these things. And I didn't have to wait until Phil was home from work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I'd have to tell him all these things that were troubling me. I had a counselor that I could bounce my ideas off of and my fears. Yeah, I kind of feel like in some ways I've been your counselor for a while too because, you know, in a lot of our appointments, Matthew, he doesn't want to be there and doesn't want to engage with me. And, you know, it seems like you and I have done a lot of talking about guilt and um, and particularly this sort of role you've taken on that you have said a number of times that you just want Matthew to be happy. You want to try to make sure things are good and okay. And, um, and I've tried to point out a number of times that you don't have any control over that, his happiness or how he's going to react. And yet that's been kind of your full-time job. I think you're slowly stepping out of that, but this, like this, devastating thing happened to him and your family and so you're trying to like put a make it make it good for him make life good for him or as good as it can be and uh again his negative symptoms are so severe that you know i've argued with you not argued i've suggested with you that that you're trying to fight a battle you can never win yeah you did tell me you know i can offer things and then it's his choice to accept them or not But as a mother, I wanted to raise my children and then let them leave the nest and be happy in life. Matthew hasn't left the nest. Given what happened and when it happened in his life, it could be so much worse. Mm-hmm. We hear about all the time in support group about people who are in situations that are so much worse. So we have this weird thing where we're we are very grateful for for many uh, things that we know could be so much worse, and yet at the same time, um, you know, there's this this thing that that will that it doesn't we can't see now a way that it that it ever goes away and it's not anybody's fault it's like he got hit by lightning or or was in a terrible car wreck or something and in fact you know if somebody had a traumatic brain injury or something it would be a very similar situation mm-hmm. it's sometimes you you think about oh you know Gosh, you know, if if things were different, I, you know, we could do this or that. And we we were just talking today about some of our friends that spontaneously go off on trips or whatever. But and yet we know that no one is more profoundly affected by this than Matthew, obviously. And and, and you know, his life has changed dramatically. And yet these days he is much more 
seems a, more able to focus on the things that he can do and the things that he can enjoy. He actually loves role-playing games and card games and video games, and, uh, and, and we go on walks every day. So things are a lot, lot better than they were. I don't know how much better they can get, but there's the, the concept of recovery that is talked about in our class. And this is another thing that it's good that we taught the class because I didn't get this at all either when I took the class. It took me several times teaching the class before I really understood their concept of recovery. You are, I mean, it sounds very simple kind of when I say it now, but you are where you are what happened what's happened has has put you in a situation and recovery is trying to build a new life from where you are and i think my problem with that to begin with was when i thought of recovering from an illness i thought of going back to the way things were prior to the illness as when most of us, you know, we have an infection or whatever, and once we get over it, we're pretty much back where we were. And and recovery and addiction is a similar thing, right? It's, it's a continual process. You're never over it, and you're, but you try to build a new life from where you are, and, and you don't make progress every day, and you, but you try to come up with goals and you try to figure out how to get there and they will be extremely tiny uh, if anybody who hasn't been through this looks at what you're doing people would think that that's that's just not anything there are some things that he does want to do now and and I'm, I'm grateful for that so tomorrow there's a role-playing game he's going to be in, so that's that's awesome. He wants to be in a room with other people sitting around a table playing a game, yeah, right? That's big, something. Big stuff, yeah. You know, there's so many divorces that come out of uh, when a family loses a child to death or to or the devastation of a chronic mental illness, and yet you two have stayed together. And I'm curious what that path has been like for you. You know, the effect of Matthew's illness on your marriage and grieving differently, perhaps, and just this whole course of, you know, I'm guessing you had this one image of the way your family's life was going to go and retirement was going to go, and now it's very different. I I always thought we were able to communicate really well, but I think that we have to force ourselves to share our feelings even more now with Matthew being ill because we have 
different things that we think about. And if we don't share them, um, I think things can go sideways. Like, um, we try to, when he's stable and doing well, having a date night is really important to me because I have that time when I can talk to Phil by myself without Matthew likes to be right next to me a lot of times. He's like my shadow and I need time to just be able to talk to Phil. So when he's doing well, we have date nights and go out to eat and we might be gone for a couple hours, two or three hours. And that's a way to make me feel normal. And you go to Disneyland. You guys go to Disneyland more than well, anyone I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been in a long time, thanks to you know the recent events. But yeah, and that's amazing that he's able to go and and enjoy it. And he he enjoys it. He that was something he enjoyed before his first break, and that's something that he still loves even though there's so many crowds and noise all around him, he's really focused in on, he has the whole place memorized. He knows where to turn to get to each, you know, little area and each ride. And it is amazing that he still loves it because um, a lot of people with his illness would not want to be in the crowds and not want to be with all that noise. But he, he loved that so much growing up and he still likes that when we have our support groups um it's generally about 80 percent women and and many of them are the moms and i think um and and many of them are married um still but many are not and i think it's too intense for a lot of the dads is my, my, is my take on it. I'm wondering what wisdom, thoughts, advice you might have to families who are listening, who might have a family member newly or maybe chronically diagnosed with some severe mental health condition in terms of what you've been through and what you've learned and because you, you two have been through quite a journey. I would gather a village, get people around you that you trust and one thing about going through all this, you realize what's really important in life and what isn't. Um, I would gather people around you that you can confide in and can help give you support. I would find a psychiatrist that you trust and that you feel comfortable with because you need a good professional on your side. I would, I would do counseling if you think it could be helpful. And and so many people are like, uh, oh, I tried counseling or, or uh, you know, our, our, our person rejected the psychiatrist or whatever. And shop. 
keep trying because even though this is a like you know a professional relationship it is also no matter how much we want there to be you know it's all just dispassionate we're dealing with extremely personal things and even though you're not going to live with your pros you are going to be talking to them about your innermost thoughts and so you need to find somebody that in some way you click with lots of people go through multiple counselors or and psychiatrists before they find somebody that really works for them and it could be that the third one back would have been fine but they weren't really ready at the time whatever just keep trying to find people that can help you and that you're you can work with there are people that we talk to who have had to put their person out of the house knowing that they would then be homeless because there just was no other way to for the rest of the family to cope and we've come to realize that that is okay that that is a thing that you have to do sometimes and even if the worst outcome you can imagine happens it's not your fault the person has a terrible illness and we don't have a good system to provide care for people who can't manage to live at home with their family and it's tragic but it's not your fault and so if you if you have to let your person go that's what you have to do but you you can't just stop living your life and be be stuck my favorite memory of Meg and Phil was a few years ago at a concert here in Fort Collins the band announced that they were donating the night's proceeds to NAMI the National Alliance for Mental Illness and on my way out of the club, I saw Meg and Phil behind the NAMI table, smiling and waving to me. There they were, giving up their Saturday night, standing behind an informational table, sharing their hope, wisdom, support. While Matthew had the terrible misfortune of developing schizophrenia, in my mind, he's been deeply lucky to have Meg and Phil as his parents. So many people who suffer from severe and persistent mental illness alienate their families and end up homeless, institutionalized in jails and prisons, or dead. I see Meg and Phil as heroes, as inspirational, as leaders in the NAMI community, as people who have walked the walk and want to help others through the same fiery coals of despair. <laughs> 